Welcome to Backlog Books. My name is Kara. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I have been reading lately. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. Happy almost Halloween. I am recording this episode more in advance than I usually do because the weekend before this episode comes out, a lot of things are happening, like Critical Role Campaign 3 is starting, and the new Dune movie is coming out, and then some friends are getting married. So I'll be a little busy. Hopefully, future Kara has a good time at all of those events. Let's get started. This time we are talking about Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I was not able to find a summary of this book, and I did not feel like writing one beyond what I had already written. This is going to be a somewhat longer episode than I usually do. But it's fine. You know what Tarzan's about, right? This book was published in a pulp magazine in 1912 and as a book in 1914. I read it in September of 2021. Our author, Edgar Rice Burroughs, was born in 1875 and died in 1950. When asked how he started writing Tarzan, he said, If people were paid for writing rot, such as I read in some of those pulp fiction magazines, I could write stories just as rotten. And he did. Tarzan was very popular. He wrote 24 books for it and turned it into a multimedia enterprise. The town he lived in even adopted the name Tarzana. He became a war correspondent during the Second World War when he was in his 60s. He also wrote in support of eugenics and believed in the inherent superiority of white people. His views may have changed over his long life. It's not easy to find relevant writings from someone who's been dead for 70 years. It's not like he had a Twitter that I can refer to. Generally, for author info, I just use Wikipedia because usually there's not a lot to say about authors. Most of them just write books. However, the one paragraph on Wikipedia about his personal views on eugenics specifically cited two unpublished works of his, so I wanted to find something that he had actually published and put his name on. Thankfully, I found a great online archive of Burroughs' writings, which I am including a link to in the show notes. The show notes are going to have a lot of stuff in them this time. Suffice it to say, I found enough to feel comfortable saying that he did indeed believe those things, and he is probably one of the less palatable products of his time. His views on race were not uncommon for the time that he lived in, but that certainly doesn't make them right or okay. The other thing about Burroughs is that his influence over a whole generation is undeniable. And these are facts that exist simultaneously. In case the last two minutes didn't tip you off, this is going to be complicated and have some difficult topics discussed, and I have absolutely no hard feelings, totally understand if you want to duck out early. 
I'm going to give you a brief rundown on pulp magazines. Then you'll get a couple of warnings about the content in this episode in the book and a one-sentence quick review in case you want to hear those things before tapping out. So pulp magazines. Wikipedia has this to say about pulp magazines. They were inexpensive fiction magazines that were published from 1896 to the late 1950s. The term pulp derives from the cheap wood pulp paper on which the magazines were printed. The pulps gave rise to the term pulp fiction in reference to run-of-the-mill, low-quality literature. Pulps were known for being sensationalist and lurid and exploitative. They were also extremely popular. Some editions would sell over a million copies. It was steady work for many authors, including Burroughs, and when the pulp magazine industry finally collapsed, it had a big effect on the publishing industry as a whole. Some other famous pulp magazine original characters include Conan the Barbarian, Buck Rogers, and Zorro. Warnings for this one include racism, cannibalism, and a brief talk about lynching. If you want to skip that part of the episode where I talk about lynching, I'm going to put the timestamps for that in the show notes. The one-sentence quick review of this book is that Tarzan is a funny, ridiculous adventure romp, but the premise is based in racist beliefs, and those permeate the rest of the book. So, if you would like to get off of this ride, now is the time. Almost every aspect of this book has a foundation of racism. The very premise is tailored around the idea that by virtue of his aristocratic white blood, Tarzan is inherently better than everyone he encounters. The only people who come close to matching him are other white people. The parts that aren't racist are classist. The parts that aren't racist or classist are ridiculous. And there are some moments that are really funny and outrageous, but that's not all that there is. You can certainly make the argument that Burroughs's views were typical for his time, but there were plenty of people in the 1900s and before who did not hold those views and also did not write dozens of books espousing those views. To be totally fair, I can't speak to the rest of the Tarzan books or the rest of Burroughs' works because I haven't read them. I've read this one book and some articles that he wrote. And I've only done what amounts to very cursory research about the man himself. What I have found has not been promising, but I encourage you, if this is a topic that you are interested in, to do your own research. By putting racism side by side with fun, rollicking adventure, to me, that makes this kind of story insidious. It sneaks into your house with the promise of adventure. Then in the middle of the night, it burns your house down. I was doing my best 
to read this one conscientiously, and I still missed some stuff. The stuff I did spot included the way Tarzan, who was raised by apes, thinks of himself as specifically a white man and thinks only of white men as his people, and how he thinks tormenting the nearby village of Africans is fun. Possibly the only time Tarzan has empathy and fellow feeling for a black person is after he has killed one of them and he briefly contemplates eating him, which is a normal jungle thing to do when you've killed. But no, Tarzan thinks, I won't eat a fellow human. The narrative praises him for his reasoning and intellect, and barely a page later, we're told the nearby Africans are cannibals for fun. Burroughs spends a lot of time telling us that by virtue of his birth as a rich white man, Tarzan is already better than everyone else. He's smarter, stronger, possessed of an innate sense of propriety, and every single character who sees him comments that he's the most beautiful person they have ever seen. Some of this is also attributed to his being raised away from civilization, but most of it is attributed to his blood. I have to start telling you the actual story or I will never get through this. Our story begins with John and Alice Clayton, Lord and Lady Greystoke. We have several paragraphs of description on John, how handsome, fearless, and well-bred he is, how strong of body and mind. And we have three words on Alice. She is young, fair, and a wife. It is 1888, and they are on their way to a British West Coast Africa colony, in quotes, to investigate claims of mistreatment of black British citizens by another European power. This is one of a few references to Congo's time under Belgium's Leopold II, which, if you've never researched that, was awful. I'm including a link to info about that in the show notes, too. Shockingly, the whole history of Africa's time being exploited by Europe is also awful, I was honestly surprised to see any reference to it at all. Most of this book just reinforces the dark continent stereotype of Africa, but if we're after a silver lining, there is, at least, a brief acknowledgement of the awful things done there in the name of imperialism and quote-unquote civilization. The Greystokes never arrive in Congo. The crew of their ship mutinies and maroons them somewhere on the coast of Africa. John builds them an impenetrable cabin by use of his amazing intellect. Man's a carpenter, apparently. Alice takes a blow to the head early on in their stay that leaves her believing they're back in England. About a year after their son is born, she dies still believing that they are in England. Rest in peace, Alice. We hardly knew you. John is sadly writing about this in his journal when the great apes that live nearby show up and kill him because he left the door open and wasn't paying attention. Also, he's been shooting his guns at them to scare them off, to be clear. 
One of the great apes, Kala, recently lost a baby, and she takes the human baby, the young Lord Greystoke, in as her own and names him Tarzan, which means white skin in the language of the apes. For twenty-ish years, Tarzan lives in the jungle and learns how to survive and hunt. Burroughs spends a really long time on this to show Tarzan's development outside of civilization and other people. Tarzan does discover his parents' cabin and takes tools from it. Though he has no idea who the former inhabitants were, their skeletons are still in the cabin. Tarzan teaches himself how to read and write using books that are miraculously still intact after 20 years in the jungle. He still cannot speak English, only the language of the apes. But he sure can read and write, you know what? So using the knife of his father, Tarzan is able to gain the upper hand in the jungle. And there's this juxtaposition in this book between Civilization has made humans weaker, and tools enable Tarzan to survive. And I guess when you're in civilization, you don't need crazy survival skills. Eventually, a group of Congolese fleeing horrible treatment by Europeans moves into the jungle and builds a village. Burroughs describes them as bestial, a word used twice in the whole book, both times to describe the Congolese. One of them, Kulonga, kills Kala, the ape who raised Tarzan. This is the part where I am going to talk about lynching. Again, if you want to skip this part, the timestamps for it are in the show notes. In retribution, Tarzan kills Kulonga and hangs his body from a tree as a warning. He does this throughout the book, catching black men with a noose and hanging them from trees. Burroughs sneaks it in. Early on, Tarzan figures out how to make a noose and uses it to catch animals. Then eventually he uses it to drag Kulunga and later others into the trees. The text praises Tarzan's ingenuity with the noose, and more than that, much of what Tarzan does is framed as him discovering by instinct the best way to fight or kill. This book was written and released in a time when lynching was happening all over the United States. I can't believe this was an accident. To have what is essentially lynching used as a common and instinctual tactic by Tarzan in this adventure novel that influenced a whole generation is not good. There's no official count of the number of Black Americans who were lynched. Estimates put the number around 4,400. There is no way that I can, in my little podcast about books, adequately cover and explain the history and the harm of lynching. In the notes, I've included a link to a study done by the Equal Justice Initiative about the continued effect lynching has had on the United States. 
And I really encourage you to read the study if you want to know more. (sighs) I am committed to telling you the rest of this story. So hold on to your hats. We're going to speed up a little. It's not the end of Tarzan's terrible behavior. He goes further. He begins to terrorize the village. He frequently sneaks in to steal from them and destroy their belongings. He thinks it's fun. Thanks to those books in his parents' cabin that he learned to read from, Tarzan knows that he is a white man and that these black men are different. They lack his amazing reasoning abilities. Burroughs even has the village leave out offerings for Tarzan, believing him to be a malevolent spirit who can be placated. Tarzan lacks any empathy for them. But when white people arrive, he immediately wants to connect with them. A party of white people are marooned at exactly the same spot as Tarzan's parents were, Because I guess there's a big sign on the coast that says, drop off white people here. It's almost exactly the same situation, too. The crew mutinies and drops off the passengers before leaving. The newly stranded bunch includes the professor, the millionaire, the skipper. No, wait, that's Gilligan's Island. It's Jane, her father, her father's friend, her companion Esmeralda, who is a caricature of a black woman whose only purpose is to scream and faint. The last member of their little crew is William Clayton, who is Tarzan's cousin and also the current Lord Greystoke, because Tarzan's father mysteriously disappeared 20 years ago. Remember that? They are stranded because the crew wants the treasure that Jane's father found. Jane and company just came off of a treasure hunt apparently. The rest of this book plays out like a comedy of errors, and when I have talked to people about these books, this kind of wild adventure ride is what they enjoy about it. The Stranded Company thinks Tarzan is two different people. Each member of the group is believed dead at least once. Tarzan has to keep leading people back out of the jungle because they keep wandering in and getting lost. Tarzan steals the buried treasure without understanding what it is. He digs it up from where the mutinous crew buried it, and he buries it somewhere else. Tarzan briefly kidnaps Jane to make her his woman before he learns about consent, which, kudos to him, I guess, doesn't take long, and he brings her back to the group. To be clear, He is in love with her, and she immediately falls in love with him because he, uh, fights an ape for her. So, like, the primeval woman inside her is drawn to the primeval man that is Tarzan. Whatever. Jane does currently have a fiancé she hates, and also Tarzan's cousin is desperately in love with her. A French ship comes by. While Tarzan is learning about the value of consent after kidnapping Jane, and the crew goes into the jungle to look for Jane. But as they enter the jungle, you can see Tarzan in the background, returning Jane safe and sound. Then a French officer is taken captive by the locals who are about to eat him when Tarzan shows up and rescues him, too. 
Tarzan takes the French officer, Darnau, to recover in the jungle. Meanwhile, the French attempt to rescue him, not knowing he's already been rescued, and they go and kill nearly everyone in the village. The sailors, believing their officer is dead, leave and take Jane and her party with them. Tarzan and Darnot return and find everyone gone. Tarzan is determined to follow Jane, so he and Darno set out together. And on their journey, Darno teaches Tarzan how to speak. He has not been able to speak this whole time. But Darno accidentally starts with French. So Tarzan reads and writes English and speaks only French. On their way to white civilization, Darno also teaches Tarzan table manners and how not to kill everyone he finds threatening. He also reads Tarzan's dad's journal. John Clayton, the former Lord Greystoke, was, for some reason, accustomed to keep his journal exclusively in French. The reason being, I assume, that we couldn't have Tarzan reading the journal until this particular point in the plot. Darnot reasons that John and Alice Clayton must have been Tarzan's parents. Tarzan has, this whole time, believed that Kala the ape was his mother, despite the fact that he thinks of himself as human, and also specifically as white. Not sure why his amazing reasoning abilities couldn't have let him come to the correct conclusion. They make it to white civilization, and they retrieve the treasure before heading to Paris. In Paris, Darno takes Tarzan to a fingerprint specialist, where they have a racist conversation about fingerprints, if you can imagine. The specialist says, you probably can't tell the difference between a white person and a black person's fingerprints, though some claim that black men's fingerprints are less complex, followed up with, an ape would have less complex fingerprints than a higher organism. Which, I want to share some shenaniganery, because this is in the public domain. I looked up a digital version of this because I needed to refer to it to finish the script. And the digital version that I read specifically took out the line about black men's fingerprints. So I guess maybe some later copies have retconned some of the racism. So, uh, anyway, fingerprint specialist Darno hopes to prove Tarzan is the Clayton's son and ergo the real Lord Greystoke using the convenient baby fingerprints found in John Clayton's journal. Meanwhile, in America, Jane is close to being married off to this terrible guy who her father owes money to. The whole reason they were on their treasure hunting trip was so her father could pay off the debts he owed without forcing Jane to marry someone awful. And then, of course, they lost the treasure. Jane does have a couple of cool moments. She keeps delaying the wedding, hoping to come up with some reason not to marry this guy. She is still in love with Tarzan, but she's questioning that. Now that she's back in civilization, she keeps thinking about Tarzan, who literally couldn't speak when she met him, and that he would be extremely uncomfortable in her world. Tarzan arrives in America just in time to save Jane and everyone else from a forest fire. He scares away Jane's terrible fiancé, 
But before Jane and Tarzan get a moment to actually talk to each other, because, remember, he only learned to talk like last month, they've never spoken, Tarzan's cousin, the current Lord Greystoke, swoops in and asks Jane to marry him. Jane, in the middle of a crisis because she nearly died in a forest fire and she's suddenly free from a terrible engagement, agrees to marry him. At the end, Tarzan is in America, rejected by Jane, who, by the way, as soon as she talks to Tarzan for one minute is like, oh no, I do love him, and he's got table manners now. Too bad I'm honor-bound to marry Lord Greystoke. And Tarzan is not sure what he's going to do next when a telegram arrives from Paris, informing him that his fingerprints match those found in the journal. He is John and Alice Clayton's baby, and therefore the true Lord Greystoke. He could claim the title and take everything from William Clayton, but that would take everything from Jane, too, and she wouldn't break off her engagement. Tarzan folds the telegram and puts it away without telling anyone what it says. My final word on Tarzan of the Apes. It is a ridiculous adventure, yes, and it's racist. There's almost no way to make a non-racist version of this story because, like I said, the whole premise is that even separated from his people, Tarzan is just inherently better because of his birth. Please don't take this to mean that I think there should never be racism portrayed in stories. One of the best things literature gives us is a chance to explore all of life, good and bad. But Tarzan of the Apes doesn't challenge anyone's opinion on race. It doesn't have anything unique or groundbreaking to say. It just insists over and over that white men are inherently better. I'm not trying to call out or shame anyone who liked the adventure parts of this book, because some of the ridiculous moments were enjoyable for their pure ludicrousness. And honestly, people can read whatever they want. As always, all I am asking is that you think about what you read. And that's the end. For more ridiculous adventure stories, I suggest basically anything written by Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett. Join me and a friend next time to hear about Eye of the World by Robert Jordan. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast. If you have any comments or questions, you can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. If you made it all the way to the end, thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you about better things soon.